Hello, church. If you'd open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we will continue on in our study of 1 Timothy. We'll be in verse 6 and read through verse 10. This is the Word of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Father, Savior, Lord, we need You to save us. To keep saving us. All the way into glory. Lord, would You use Your Word today to persevere our faith, to strengthen our faith, and to remind us who You are. Lord, we trust that You'll do this. It is according to Your will, Lord, that we know You. And so, Father, deepen that knowledge. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of Yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you uh, may remember that this exact Sunday last year, uh, first Sunday of the new year, we studied this exact same passage. Uh, I don't think that's accidental. Uh, we're just studying through First Timothy and happened to land here again. Seems providential that God wants us here uh, in this passage again. Uh, I completely disregarded that sermon from last year, however, and uh, we will, I will not re-preach uh, that sermon. I will actually spend two weeks in this passage, and, and we'll get into completely new things than what we did last year. Um, but here, here's the danger, I think, you know, studying any book of the Bible, uh, but especially the pastoral epistles, first and, and second uh, Timothy, is that you can get down into all these particulars of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. You can st start talking about the gender roles in the church. Uh, the office of deacon and elder. You can begin to talk about uh, discipling uh, the church through corporate singing, through creeds and confessions. We, we've been looking at all these things, and you can get so fixated on these uh, important things that you can miss the big picture and really what's most important. And so this whole passage, really the whole book, up is building, uh, and you could make the argument that it's building into verse 10. And certainly this section is building into verse 10. That's really where I want to focus today. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll next week come back and draw outside of verse 10. But I really want us to look at this uh, again. It says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope, on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, everybody gets caught up, and i got to just acknowledge this at the beginning, uh, the Savior of all people. What does that mean? 
Um, and we'll get to that, but that is a tag-on uh, to the beginning of verse 10, and it's important, but I think if you understand the beginning of verse 10, uh, the end of verse 10 uh, will make a lot of sense. So, for to this end, it starts. That's the telos, that's the, uh, the purpose statement, why we do what we do. For to this end, we toil and strive. So, in other words, Christians aren't lazy, aimless people. We're not undisciplined people who have no idea what we're doing with our lives. We're not staring up at the clouds and saying, uh, why do I exist? What am I here for? Uh, That's the existential crisis plaguing our culture and our world, but that's not the Christian. We have vision. We have clarity. We have order. We have direction on what we're to do with our lives. We have purpose. He says, for to this end, we, not just Paul and Timothy, but all Christians toil and strive, you could uh, translate it agonize, so we're working, we're all working with this common purpose and aim, agonizing even, in our pursuit of what? To set our hope on the living God. So we're working, we're striving, we're agonizing even, to rest. We're working to rest. Rest our bodies? No. Rest our hope in the living God. And when Paul says living God, that is not arbitrary or random. He's not just kind of saying the first name of God that pops in his head. Very intentional. Paul's an Old Testament scholar. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the names of God. He knows they carry deep significance and meaning. And he's speaking to another man who knows the Old Testament. Timothy, from a young age, was acquainted with the sacred writings. His mother and grandmother taught him the Bible. So when he says living God, that not only means something to Paul, it means something to Timothy, and it should mean something to us. And here's my concern, is that it doesn't mean much that it might land with a lot of vagueness, kind of fuzzy, what living God, and, and, and there's little meaning and significance behind that phrase. And I agree with C.S. Lewis who said, those who don't study the God of the Bible don't have no ideas about God, they just have wrong and bad ones. And so what I want to do is meditate on this phrase, living God, That's all we're going to look at the rest of the sermon. And just meditate on Him and try to fill our minds with right thoughts about God. Um, You know, our our world does not want to do that. Uh, They don't care to think about God at all, much less rightly about Him. And there's some that are so want to, to think rightly about God that they get so deep epistemologically and philosophically and in a metaphysics and, and they go so deep and we would just get utterly lost trying to follow uh, their lead. Here's what I want to do today. I want to look at uh, 10 Old Testament saints who knew the living God and spoke about Him and I want us to think about what they have said about the living God. Their words are recorded in Scripture And I've categorized them into four categories to make it a little simpler. Um, And and let me say this, though, before we look at these. Um, There is more 
to God than they can describe. Words, even inspired words, cannot exhaust God. He is unfathomable. He is unknowable in, in His pure being. You can't describe Him. I cannot rightly and fully describe Him. However, what Scripture tells us about God is accurate and true. It's not incomplete. But He is more than words and our minds can truly grasp. But here's four things that I think we need to know about Him. Here's the first. The living God is. He is. All other gods and idols are not, but Yahweh is. He says, I am who I am. That's how He identifies Himself. And, and how am I supposed to stand here and, and, and describe the God who says, I am who I am. Uh, here, but here's what I know. To the degree in which you know Him, you will live for Him. We're not just theorizing and, and, and talking ideas about God. To the degree in which you know this God, you will live for Him. You will not be able to not live for Him. One of the first things that I learned as a new Christian, and this is really one of the greatest things I've ever learned since then, it's incredibly valuable when you learn this, that theology is practical. And theo means God. And ology is words. So words about God are always practical. Uh, they will always begin to change you when you truly begin to grasp more of who God is. You will begin to mature. You will begin to make progress to the degree in which you know God. And you say, well, well what do you mean, know Him? Like, know Him intellectually or know Him personally? Yes. It's both. And we should never put those things against, against each other because to the uh, truly regenerate, born-again Christian, intellectual knowledge of God is always personal. It, it, intellectually knowing what the Scripture reveals about God will always translate into your relationship with Him. It will. Listen to Jeremiah 9, 23. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And listen what follows. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I, de I delight, declares the Lord. And so this is what's laughable in our world. And I say laughable because I, I think God, uh, we could say, laughs at, at things this silly and ridiculous. Uh, that there are many call them social justice advocates, who act like they are the great arbitrators of righteousness on the earth. As if God were not. As if no one cared as much as they do. When this passage, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Few believe that. They really believe it. nobody in the universe cares as much as I do about this particular issue. 
That if I hold up my sign a little higher or yell a little louder, somehow the evil will go away. The greatest humanitarians care much less about evil than they think they do. And they can do much less about eliminating it than they think they can. But there is a living God who not only sees the injustice and evil, but He can and He will deal with it. He is not passive. It will be dealt with either at the cross of His Son or it will be dealt with at His second coming. But it will be dealt with. He is not passive in this. And He's shown us this. Has He not throughout history? I mean, many of us are reading the, uh, the Bible reading plans and we're going through Genesis right now. I'm, I read just this week uh, Noah and the flood. And it's sobering because you have the whole world living as if there's no God, that there's no God who sees them or knows them or cares what they're doing. And then in Genesis 6, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of of the land. God is the active doer. Man is passive and messing everything up. And you say, well, what kind of, what kind of God would flood the earth? And I would say, what kind of evil God wouldn't flood the earth? I mean, what kind of evil God looks at a humanity killing and lying and stealing and hating each other and goes, I don't really care. It's fine with me. And what does that show? It shows he's no different than them. But a God who looks at the evil and the injustice and says, I will deal with this. And not only will I deal with it, I'll recreate the earth and I'll make a new people who won't keep killing and hating and rebelling. That's a loving God. That's a good God. I heard someone say recently, you know, there's so many gods out there. How do we know which one is true? And then someone said, the one that everyone hates, that's the true one. And there's a similar thing that could be said to that question, how do we know which God is the real one? The real one is the one who cares enough to deal with evil, and to bring about good. And at that point, every false god and every other religion falls to the ground, and one god remains standing, the god Yahweh, the god of Scripture. There are no competitors. Now, I love the, uh, the image, the story. Um, we should tell our kids these. These are amazing images of... of uh, historical stories. The pagan uh, in the pagan temple of Dagon, what happened? Remember the story: a little statue of Dagon they'd set up for worship, and they would they would leave it there, and then they would come back in the next day, and he's laying down on the ground, face down, bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, you've got this little figurine, and he's he's just every day bowing before. Uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And you think, well, well maybe he's that, that false God is bowing because he knows that 
God is the real God. No, he's not alive. He's a little wooden statue. The God put the little wooden statue on the ground. It didn't come up with the idea that it's appropriate to worship the true God. I'm just a lesser God. He's a greater God. Look, I've been in missionary contexts where the missionaries felt so scared to talk to natives or people uh, or, or possibly uh, offend them with their beliefs of their God. But listen to the prophets of God. Isaiah, for example. He didn't hesitate to publicly say this. That the nations carry their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. And then he says, not only can't they save you, they themselves go into captivity captivity with you. Then God says to the prophet, listen to me, O house of Jacob, the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he. To the gray hairs I will carry you, I have made you, I will bear you, I will carry you, I will save you. So Isaiah is setting up this dichotomy between the, the false gods that are carried with donkeys into captivity with their people, and then Yahweh who carries his people into salvation. Or take Jeremiah the prophet who speaks of the pagan idols and says this, they are cut from a tree in the forest and worked, worked uh, with an axe by the hand of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. And then listen to what he calls their gods. They're like scarecrows in a field. They cannot speak. He says they have to be carried for they cannot walk. And then he says to the people of God, why would you fear their gods that can do neither good nor evil? And then he flips it and says about Yahweh that He is the true God. The living God. The everlasting King. Hezekiah uh, overheard, and and it was in his uh, in his face. I guess you could say this in First King or Second uh, Kings nineteen. Uh, Assyria, the king of Assyria, mocking the living God, and so he prayed this: "O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods." But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God alone. Or in the New Testament, Acts 14 and Lystra, the people started worshiping and they're doing, uh, the apostles are doing miracles and Paul and Barnabas begin to be worshiped. And people in the city began to say, the gods have come down as men. And what was the response of, of Paul and Barnabas? It says that they, they tore their garments and rushed into the riot, into the crowd, and said this, men, why are you doing this? We are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. So that is the first thing that we need to know about the living God. He is the living God. And there aren't any other gods that live. Point two. The living God sees. 
He sees. The first time that God reveals himself as, a, as the God who sees is to Hagar. Uh, many of you remember in, in Genesis 16. Um, look, there's no other way to say this. You know, Hagar was suicidal. She was at her lowest moment. She was utterly despairing of life itself. She's waiting in the wilderness and God shows up to help her. And here's what she calls him. The God who sees. He cares. He's alive. He's personal. He notices me sitting here thinking I'm going to die in the wilderness. He sees me. And she calls him this, El Rahoy. Yahweh, El Rahoy, the God who sees. King David knew the living God, El Rahoy. He said in Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. El Rahoy is the living God that knows every hair on your head. He knows every detail and circumstance of your life. You know, even the most attentive parents close their eyes and go to sleep, but the living God never closes his eyes and ignores his children. He never needs to sleep. He never needs to rest. He never needs to turn his back on us to look into some other thing that he has to do. You guys, do y'all ever get one of those moments where you're, you know, driving in traffic or you're in a stadium or some large crowded place and you look around and it just, it's just this sobering moment where you say, do any of these people even live as if there's a living God? Do they even, do they have any understanding that there's a living God? I mean, most of humanity live as practical atheists, as if God were dead, as if there were no God that sees them or knows them or knows what they're doing or they'll stand before one day. Most of the world lives like that. You ever look around and just say, what, what, these people are driving and they're working and they're, they're shopping and they're going here and there and, they're, and it's, why? Why are they doing everything they're doing? Is it because they know God and they're living in the light of God's presence? Or is it just for other people? Is everything for other people as if other people are the only living beings that see them or know them or, or they want uh, affection from or attention or love from? Just people, 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 people as if God is not a, alive. You know, Paul said to those in Athens, that in Him we live and move and have our being. He didn't say that to Christians. He said that to a bunch of non-Christians. In Him you live. You have your being because of Him. By the way, that's what I think verse 10 means when it says He's the Savior of all people. All people have their breath in their lungs that are still alive because He saves them and gives them breath to breathe. In that sense, using the word Savior in a broad way, He's saving everyone at all times or else you're dead. He is the Savior of all people. I titled the sermon today, uh, Quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase. Uh, it's an amazing phrase. Actually, the, the Reformers started using it during the Reformation because people, uh, a lot of the Catholics would come to them and say, what do you live for? What are you about? What are you... 
what, what is your view of life? And, and they wanted a little phrase to kind of sum up what they were about. And they would say, Coram Deo, which meant living all of life in the face of God, in the presence of God. That, that we view all of life, everything we do, is being done in the presence of a living God. Therefore, we eat and drink and do whatever we do for the glory of God. You see, Christians, what we understand is that this world, everything in this world, is God's. It's God's world. And we live and move and have our being in His all-seeing presence and life. Which is what Adam struggled with. Remember the first thing that happened to Adam when Adam, Adam sins, uh, sin comes into the world, and what does Adam immediately do? He does what? He runs. He acts as if God is not going to see him. As if he can somehow hide what he just did from God. And is this not the problem with all of humanity? We seek to live as if God does not see, as if God does not care. Think of the prodigal son. Did he just want to rebel in his father's house? In the sight of his father? No, he wanted to get away to a distant and foreign land. Then I can be rebellious. Then I can live and, and squander my inheritance where my father won't see me. And once there was true repentance, he came back in the sight of his father, in the presence of his father. This is what sin does. It isolates us. It makes us want to get away from God and away from God's people and away from God's Word. Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, who think about that one. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. In the daytime, at night, and in secret. And then what does Jesus say to him? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works are being carried out in God. The father in Proverbs was trying to teach his son the same thing in Proverbs 5 regarding sexual sin. He said, Son, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And that reality that God sees everything you're doing, even when you're in secret, shouldn't make you run from God, son. It should make you run to God. That's the wisdom of the Father in Proverbs. And Moses, I mean, Moses left Egypt because he knew God can see me there. I can't hide. And I would rather suffer with the people of God and the covenant God of Israel than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He left sin and went to suffer with God's people because he knew the living God was a reality. He knew I can't escape his penetrating gaze even in Egypt. He sees me. You know, to be aware of the presence of God is to be Christian. That's what it means to be Christian. To know there is a God. To know that we live before Him. You know, when Paul, uh, or Saul, who became Paul, uh, was converted, what's the first thing that happened to him in his conversion? 
His eyes were blinded, physically blinded, but yet he finally saw spiritually. And he said, is it you, Lord? He's, he's physically blinded, but yet he sees. And he knows that God is there. And this leads to the third point. The living God speaks. Not animalistically, not with uh, clicks or howls or, or bird melodies. It's not some uh, mystical feeling or subjective feeling, but intelligent, clear communication. He comes to Moses, for example, and speaks to him out of a burning bush. And in Exodus 3, we have this theophany, we could call it, this appearance of God to Moses. And he says this, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And Moses hears a voice say, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them into a good land. And God promises Moses, don't doubt that I won't mock the gods of Egypt. He says, my name will be remembered forever throughout all generations. And then God does everything he tells him he will do and brings his people out. And listen to these people who get brought out of Egypt and keep sinning against God. And they say to Moses, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking? Out of the midst of fire as we have and still lived. And then they say to Moses, go and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us. All that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And so here, here's all I'll say on this point. Uh, we, when we say God speaks, we mean more than he just speaks in his word or on carven uh, uh, stone tablets. Uh, when, God, when we say that God speaks... The Bible says that there is a word that became incarnate, that God revealed himself, the logos, the first time Christ came. He manifested and spoke on behalf of God. He was the prophet of all prophets. But the Bible says that he is coming again. And remember how Revelation depicts the Word, the Logos, the Word of God coming down again, it says that He will come down with vengeance and for judgment with a sword out of His mouth. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to strike down the nations. And that leads to the fourth and final thing to see about the living God is that He is a God who wars. Sabaoth. Yahweh. Sabaoth is the name given to the living God of war, the Lord of hosts, who comes to judge and to save. And there's a lot of places we could go to see this, but think of the transition between Moses uh, to Joshua. God wants to prove that He alone is the living God. And He says to Joshua, come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan and stand still. And Joshua obeys and stands and God says, come here and listen, or, or I'm sorry, Joshua says to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. 
here's how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Perizzites and Girgashites and Amorites and Jebusites. And how, here's how you'll know he'll put all these foreign enemies to flight and win every victory. And he does it. He proves to be Sabaoth. And that same warrior God, you think of David. And David is standing before that Philistine giant. 1 Samuel 17, it says that that giant mocked the armies of the living God. And then God took down the giant. You say, I thought David did. I thought it was David with his sling and hit the, the giant's head. Look, do this, okay, when you get to heaven. Go find David. Go ask David. Are you the great warrior of Israel? Did you conquer all the armies? Did you fight all the battles? Did you win? Are, are you the one who defeated the giant? I don't think David's going to take credit for that. Even before David died and went to heaven, he said, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will fight for us. And brothers and sisters, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You have enemies that plague you daily and hinder your knowing God. You're living for God. You're living for His kingdom. And He will fight for you so that you can advance His kingdom. And He will advance his kingdom through you. And, and look, I know at the cross of Christ, there was a war that was fought and our souls were won and there was victories won over Satan and the world and the flesh, but there are still daily battles in our path to glory that need to be fought and won. And the Lord Sabaoth is not changed. He is still the God of war who fights for His people. And you must avail yourself of this one who can fight for you. I think about Daniel in the lion's den. Why did God deliver Daniel from the lion's den? I would say it was so that King Darius would look down in that pit and say, Daniel, servant of the living God. And then he saw that God protected Daniel and there wasn't a scratch on him from all those lions. And then he decreed, it says, to all peoples, tremble and fear the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. So why does God fight for us? Why does God deliver us? To make a name for himself on the earth and to take us as his own possession. He wants to reconcile us to Himself. He wants us to know Him. I was rereading recently uh, C.S. Lewis in his, uh, his most famous book, Mere Christianity. And at one point, he, Lewis is commenting on what we might call God's aliveness. And he said this, God has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. 
He does not have to deal with us and the mass of humanity. You are as much alone with Him as if you were the only being He had ever created. Now, Lewis may be wrong. Maybe God is too busy for us, especially those of us who keep failing and sinning against Him. But, uh, it seems to me Lewis is right. And that the God revealed in Scripture is not too busy for us. And that He is not overwhelmed with the issues going on in the world or the requests of the masses. That He is able to treat us as individuals as if no other existed. As if you and Him alone were on the earth. As if you were the first Adam in the garden alone with God. Our God is not bound by time and space. He is omnipresent. He can treat you like that. And this is what provoked in even David to say, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or how lovely are your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, O Lord of Sabaoth. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. When we pray, uh, for our Father, which we should pray every day, Jesus said, we know when we're saying our Father, we know there's other people probably at that same exact moment praying that. God's hearing that from many, many people. But when we call Him Father, we are daring to believe that we are a son. And what good father doesn't give some attention to their child who asks, I'm a very sinful fallen father. If my kids want a few minutes with me and ask me, how could I ignore that? And how much more our Heavenly Father will not turn His eye and His ear to you when you call upon Him. He is the living God. Now, I know some of you are tired and ready for lunch, but I've got an Augustine quote that's better than your lunch coming. Um, and I didn't preach the last two weeks, so I get longer. <clears throat> um, Augustine's trying to reach for illustrations to say something about uh, how, how glorious and good God is. Listen to this. When you were thirsty, you looked for a fountain. And if you get to the fountain, you look for a light. And if there's no daylight, you look for a lamp to get to the fountain. But He, God, is both a fountain and a light. And to the thirsty, He is a fountain. And to the blind, a light. Let your eyes be open to see the light. Let the lips of your heart be open to drink of the fountain. God becomes everything to you. For He is the whole of the things you love. If you attend to visible things, well, God is neither bread, nor water, nor light, nor a garment, nor a house. For all these things are visible, individual, and separate. What bread is, water is not. What a garment is, house is not. What these things are, God is not. For they are visible things. God is all of these things to you. If you are hungry, He is bread to you. 
If you are thirsty, He is water to you. If you live in darkness, He is light to you. For He remains incorruptible. And if you are naked, He is a garment of immortality to you. And it just reminds me of something uh, Lewis said. And I I don't remember where and, and, and I can't even quote it perfectly. But he said, if you find in yourself this longing for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, it can only be quenched by that which is not from this world. He alone can satisfy your every thirst, calm your every fear, comfort and heal your every pain, forgive all of your sins, defeat all of your enemies, fulfill your every desire. And like Augustine just said right there, He becomes everything to you, for He is the whole of the things you love. This is the being of God. Who has life in himself. John uh, chapter 1 verse 2 says, In him was life. In him was life. Not just coming from him. In him is life. Herman Bavink says, God has a distinct and infinite life of his own within himself. You say, is that just some sort of philosophy and just kind of throwing ideas around? No, that's from John 5, which says, As the Father has life in Himself, so the Son has life in Himself. So the eternality of the living that that, uh, that emanates and comes out of the being of God doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have uh, an end. It's a self-existent, non-ending, life-giving life. That somehow, if you can, by faith, it seems the Scripture seems to teach us, unite yourself with the being who is life, eternal, you live eternal because of your relation to the eternal being who is God. And again, this is what Jesus said. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment. He has passed from death to life. And here's the tragedy of all tragedies. Right after that, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Life isn't just entering into, or eternal life isn't just entering into a certain place. It's being united to a certain person. That's what Jesus said. He's praying to the Father in John 17, and He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So many Christians just talk of Jesus as, oh, just... You know, make a decision and ask Jesus in your heart. This language is just confusing and foreign to Scripture. You need to believe in the one who has eternal life, proved it in his death and resurrection, and that life is given to you. And you live eternally with him and will raise with him and live with him forever. He is a Savior to all people, especially to those who believe, it says. 
The question isn't if God is a Savior to you. He is. The question is, how long will He save you? I think most people are willing to let God save them for this life only. I'll take some more bread. I'll take some more water. I'll take some more blessings. All the things of this earth that I can have as long as I have it, He's a Savior for them in a temporal sense. They're fine with that. Some of us, by the grace of God, have been able to see, I don't need saving for this life only. I need eternal life. I need, I need to be saved forever. I need His forgiveness to remove my sins, His Spirit to give me life, His Son to fight my battles. Not 60, 70, 80 years of blessings in this life only. But by the grace of God to say, if He can save me forever, I will put all of my trust in the One who can save me forever. I will know Him. I will love Him. I will submit to Him. I will follow Him. And He satisfies the soul. John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's good. Amen, church. Let's go to the table. Let's proclaim that we believe this. It says that as you come and eat and drink, you proclaim his death until he comes. Uh, we want to do that together. For those of you uh, who know Jesus Christ, who know this living God, who have publicly professed that in baptism, uh, please come and join us at the table today. Uh, if you'll be refraining, you can find on your bulletin on page two uh, some very meaningful prayers. Father, we acknowledge that there are no other gods to pray to You are the living God. Your Son and Your Spirit are the life givers. And we need You. We have always needed You. And we will always need You. We acknowledge that reality. And Lord, would You help us as we go from here to live as if these things are true. Lord, we ask that You would help us to believe all that You have said, and to live for You and Your glory. Lord, strengthen us at the table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.